0: Oh, I'm so glad that you could join us today for worship, and now this time of worshiping around his word. It's going to be a great time to be together in the Lord. Would you just bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Father, we are so grateful that we've had this time to sing praises to you, to remind you, remind ourselves, Lord, that you're with us. As we gather together in your name, you promise a very special sense of your presence, and we sense that even now, and we know you're going to continue As we now worship around your word, you're going to be speaking into our lives the things we need to hear. God, be our encouragement, be our help, be our correction today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So where I'd like to begin is reminding you of something I told you last week, that this book, the book of Philippians, is truly one of the most joyful and positive books in the entire New Testament, really in the whole Bible. But it's also important to keep in mind where the Apostle Paul was when he wrote this. He's in the midst of a two-year prison stint. He is chained 24-7 to an elite member of the Imperial Guard, and he's not certain if he's going to live or die. Yet, in this book, he doesn't complain, blame, or sink into negativity. Instead, he writes a book to both comfort and encourage the believers who are at Philippi. He's even super encouraged by how God is using this time in prison to expand the impact of the gospel in the kingdom. Now, in the second chapter of the book of Philippians, he turns our attention to what it makes or what it takes to make a truly fulfilling life. Some people have described Philippians 2 as the Mount Everest of the New Testament. There's no question it's the heart of the book of Philippians. Even Dr. Timothy Keller with Redeemer Presbyterian Church In New York City considers this to be the greatest chapter in all the Bible. So where I'd like to begin is to help us get a proper frame of mind and begin with this question, where do you find God? I mean, I've seen some pretty inspiring places in my lifetime. I've had the privilege of traveling to different parts of the world. I've seen St. Paul's Cathedral in London, St. Patrick's in Dublin, I've seen the Glasgow Cathedral in Scotland and St. Anne's in Quebec, Canada. All of them truly inspiring places that were designed to showcase the majesty and the magnificence of God. I can still remember when I first walked into St. Paul's. This is the same church where Princess Diana and Prince Charles were married. I can remember taking a seat at the back of that auditorium and literally being overwhelmed with tears as I thought about the connection I shared with believers who'd worship in that church for like 300 plus years. It was an inspiring place to be. For others, it's about sacred places, you know, like uh, the Holy Land, uh, Jerusalem, the city of God, Bethlehem, the birthplace of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Sea of Galilee, where much of Jesus teaching and many of his miracles took place. You know, I've heard so many people say who've traveled to the Holy Land that they just felt so close to Jesus walking in the places where he walked. For others, still, we find God in creation in all the beautiful places around the world. Places like the Garden Island of Kauai, the Grand Canyon, the Redwood Forest of California, uh, Yosemite, Niagara Falls, the Rainforest, There's something about being in a place of exquisite beauty that really draws us into God. But all those examples I've just shared with you, the the churches, the holy places in the Holy Land, and these wonderful, amazing places of exquisite beauty around the globe, they all have something in common, and that is, you know, if God is limited to sacred places like that, then for most of the world, God will be inaccessible. Because the truth is, many people are never going to have the money to to travel to these places, to see and experience these things, unless they were born in that location. Because the world's poor, most of them will live and die in relatively close proximity to the place where they were born. But the good news is this, you don't have to travel to find God. Because God can be found in the common in the ordinary, and in the mundane. God lives in the slums of the world. He lives among the refuse. He lives in squalor, in desperate situations, in the hungry, and the thirsty. Remember what Jesus taught us in Matthew 25. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. I was a stranger, you took me in. What Jesus is making abundantly clear is wherever you find desperate situations, you will find him. So God is anywhere, and God is everywhere, because God is the God of the common and the earthy. Think for a minute about the difference between these two words, between beauty and dirty. You know, the word beauty, most all of our associations with it are very positive. And the word dirty, it's just the opposite. We have every association with it being something bad or negative. Yet when Lucifer, the devil, is described in Scripture, we're told that he is an angel of light. He is absolutely, stunningly beautiful. And God, when he shows up on the planet the very first Christmas, he's born into poverty and filth. As shocking as it sounds, God gets dirty. Now, in keeping with that thought, remember what the prophet Isaiah told us about the Messiah. What he writes about is intended to keep our expectations of God grounded in reality so that we won't miss him, so that we won't be looking in the wrong places or the wrong people. This is what he said in Isaiah 53, 2-3. to three. The servant grew up before the Lord, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to, uh, to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him, and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. What Isaiah tells us is when it comes to Messiah, when you go search for him, don't look among the beautiful people. Jesus is no Kardashian. He would have no physical beauty about him to attract us to him. Now, there's no question, his life, his character were beautiful. They were amazing. But physically, there's nothing about the Christ that we would find compelling. Isn't it odd how much we've really reversed this thinking? I mean, just do a simple Google image search for the name Jesus Christ, and what you'll find is picture after picture of wavy, blonde, beautiful, flowing hair Uh, perfect features, fair skin, light-colored eyes. In other words, what this world considers to be beautiful, attractive features. It's really the complete opposite of what Isaiah told us to watch for. I don't know if you remember this, but a few years back, Popular Mechanics actually featured an article called The Real Face of Jesus. Now, obviously, no one knows exactly what Jesus looks like. And apart from this description in the prophet Isaiah, there is no description of the physicality of Jesus, of his appearance, of what he looked like. So what happened is this. The article explained that a group of forensic anthropologists assisted by Israeli archaeologists have tried to reconstruct the face of the average Jewish person who lived in the first century where Jesus was from. So through a process that looks a lot like the the way we discover the identity of crime victims— They constructed the face of the average Jew from the first century who lived in the region where Jesus lived, and this is the image they came up with. Now, obviously, we'll never know what Jesus looked like for sure until one day, face to face, when we're with him in heaven. Of course, we will see him on that day, but I can say this he likely looked a lot more like that image than he does like Brad Pitt. Jesus' physical appearance was unremarkable. He was a common man with an uncommon spirit, a lowly man with a lovely heart, a simple man with a glorious mission. What I'm telling you is that God doesn't shy away from what is common, what is ordinary, or from what is dirty. We assume Messiah would be laying on satin sheets in a palace of gold, but not this baby. This baby is born in rags. So he comes to earth through the servant's entrance. He comes to identify with humans where we really live, in our pain, in our suffering, in our poverty. C.S. Lewis, one of the classics that he wrote is a book called Miracles. And in that book, he made this powerful observation. He comes down. He's speaking of Jesus here. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. Now, the reason I've told you all of these things is because this is where Paul begins Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, he's going to describe in great theological detail what exactly it meant for Jesus to come and live among us. The things, the choices he would make, the disadvantages he would experience. He wants us to understand that God gets his hands dirty. So in Philippians chapter two, verses five and six, this is what he writes. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now that word equality in the original language is a very interesting word. The Greek word for equality is the word isos, and it means equality equality, but more specifically, it means exactly equal. In other words, exactly equal, size, quality, quantity, character, number, whatever quantifier you want to put on that word, it means to be exactly equal. So Paul tells us about Jesus' entrance into the world, but he begins by telling us, first and foremost, Jesus is equal with God, not just equal with God, but he is exactly equal with God because Jesus is God. And though he had all the rights and privileges of deity, what Paul says in this verse is he refused to cling to those rights, to those honors. He willingly gives them up. He doesn't give up being God. He gives up the rights, the honors, the privileges of deity. So Paul describes Christ's entrance into the world as descending the ladder, if you will. He's descending the ladder and arriving at the bottom. Listen to him go on to explain. He says in verses seven and eight, rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He made himself nothing. The Greek word is kenosis. And what it means is he empties himself. He literally empties himself. But what does he empty himself of? Well, first thing, and again, let me just underscore, he does not empty himself of his deity. He is who he is. He cannot be anything less than who he is. He is eternally and will always be God. You know, one of the early church fathers was a man named Athanasius. And Athanasius was a bishop in Alexandria, Egypt. He had a lot of people who opposed him. And many of them who opposed him called him names. They called him the Black Dwarf because he was from Africa and he was a very short man. But Athanasius was a powerhouse for God. He was a passionate lover of Jesus. In fact, what he's best known for is this this statement that has made its way somehow into seemingly every creed that's been written since time began after him. And that is this, Jesus became what he was not. He became what he was not, which is human. He continued to be what he was, which is God. So then the question is, he doesn't give up his deity. What exactly did Jesus give up for you and for me? Well, for one thing, he gave up his glory. Jesus literally comes from the heights of glory. Before coming to this earth, Christ occupied the highest position possible, and he descended to the lowest position imaginable. He gives up his heavenly glory, which is why he prays in John 17, and now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you, listen to this phrase, before the world began. Jesus is clearly stating here that he was with the Father before the world began. So what existed before the creation of the world? God. God was it. And Jesus existed with God for all time. And what this verse is saying is that Jesus gave up that glory that he shared with the Father. For the muck and mire of this earth, another way to think of it is he covered up, concealed, or somehow veiled his glory. Now we get glimpses of it in the gospel. We see a glimpse of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see a glimpse of his glory in his miracles and in the profound things that he said. We see his glory in the cross and there is this blazing manifestation of his glory in the resurrection. But he empties himself in some measure of the ongoing, complete, and outward manifestation of heavenly glory. He empties himself. Secondly, he gives up his divine privileges. I mean, think about it. As God, he has rights. He has rights to be revered, to be worshiped, to be served and ministered to by angels, He to be immune from poverty and pain and humiliation. As God, he owns everything. Everything in the world belongs to him. Everything in the universe belongs to him. Yet he came into this world having to borrow everything. He had to borrow a place to be born, and it wasn't much of a place at that, was it? He had to borrow a place to lay his head because he had no home. He had to borrow a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. He had to borrow a boat one time to teach in. He had to borrow a donkey for the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, had to borrow a room so that he and his disciples could enjoy the Passover together, and he had to borrow a tomb only for three days, but he had to borrow that too. The only person who had a right to everything wound up with nothing. This is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the rightful heir to the throne of David, as well as God as human flesh. And he comes into this world with no advantages. God, who owns everything, who can do anything, empties himself. And then third, he gives up his right to life. If you ask the question, how low did he go? How, what was he willing to give up? Well, verse eight answers it clearly. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So not only does he submit to death, he, he submits to the worst death Imaginable death on a cross, excruciating, humiliating. We're talking unimaginable cruelty, indescribable pain, a death reserved for the worst of the worst. Do you know in polite Roman society, they wouldn't even use the word cross. It was so offensive. If they knew that someone was going to die on a cross, the way they would say it is they would be hung on the unlucky tree. It was like almost a profane curse word to them. So they, they avoided using it altogether. And so nothing in the day of Paul, in the day of Christ, is more offensive or scandalous than the cross. Sometimes when I think about the scene that leads up to the cross and the cross itself, I think, you know, wasn't there somewhere along the line, maybe when he was back was being filleted open by the cat of nine tails. Maybe when he was being drugged through the streets of Jerusalem. Maybe when he was nailed to that cross and people gathered around the foot of the cross to mock him and insult him. Don't you think that Jesus might've wanted to stop it all and just say, enough is enough. These people aren't worth it. Nothing is worth this. I demand that you recognize me as your creator. This is gonna end. It's going to end right now. But he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't stop it. He submits to it. He's obedient, even to death on the cross. You know, I've been to Africa many times. I've been to a half a dozen countries. There's probably at least 25 trips to Africa, different parts. One thing that's common in traveling to Africa and a lot of Asia is before you can enter those countries, you have to have a yellow fever vaccination. Uh, For example, when you land in Lagos, Nigeria, and you get off the plane, before you even speak to anybody, before you go through immigration, customs, or anything like that, before anything happens, someone wants to look at your universal shot record and make sure that you've had yellow fever vaccination. Because if you have not, they're going to turn you around and put you on the next plane home. This week, I was reading about this vaccine, and I discovered something I didn't know before. In 1927, there was a man, a West African man, his name is Asibi. This is the only photo of Asibi that exists. He was a West African native. He came down with yellow fever, but unlike others, he did not die. Because his system conquered the disease, what happened is scientists found the antibodies in his blood that were needed to overcome the disease. That vaccine developed from his blood saved untold thousands of lives. But here's the deal. Each and every dose of yellow fever vaccine can be traced back to a CB's original blood sample. Did you know that? One man's blood has saved the lives of millions. When I think of that, I think about in ways that probably we can't fully understand that that's what the blood of Christ did for us. His blood has saved billions of people because his blood and what's in that blood is the perfect vaccine against this disease called sin. So that's what it took for God to show his great love to all of us. But he's not just showing us what Christ was willing to do for our sake. He's showing us the only way to live a fulfilling life. And that's follow in his steps, which leads me to this last point. Living a truly fulfilled life. You see, this entire description of Christ coming to this earth was prefaced by one simple statement In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing here is offering an antidote, if you will, a remedy to the sickness of society what might be better termed, a Christian mindset. This is so important, he even mentions it in verse two of this same chapter, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Now, you might remember before Easter, we did this series that we called Out of Water. And the subtext of that message series was thinking about our thinking. And what we said in that series was it was so important to think about our thinking because what happens is so many of us, we try to change our behavior without examining the thinking that led to that behavior. And when we do that, it's kind of like chopping the top off of a weed. You may extinguish it for a while, but it's coming back because you haven't dealt with its root. The root is in the bad thinking that led to it. So we have to deal with the root of our thinking, our mindset. We need a mind makeover. So the question is, what's a Christian mind? Well, first and foremost, like Paul has just said, a Christian mindset is not focused exclusively on ourselves, but on one another. We're all in this together. When one wins, we all win. When one loses, we all lose. What makes our church a church is that no one seeks only their own interest or their own welfare. Instead, we're all passionately concerned with how our brothers and sisters are faring, which stands in bold relief to what's happening in many segments of our society right now. In fact, this individual that I have shared with you, their image on the screen in Tennessee with a sign that says, Sacrifice the weak, reopen Tennessee. May God have mercy on their soul. I'm not saying we can't talk about what it means to reopen our economy and the country and getting people back to work. Those are meaningful discussions to have. But that individual and that sign is the spirit of Antichrist that thinks only of the self and cares nothing about the safety and security of our vulnerable brothers and sisters. You know, what I know is this. You can't be a Christian on your own. It's not possible. It's contradiction. The Christian life is never presented as a solo run. It's not a life lived as a rugged individualist. Instead, we are intimately connected with one another. Having a Christian mind is to view life as a community project. We don't live a privatized Christianity as if my brothers and sisters are of no concern to me, which is why the very first thing Paul addresses in the fulfilling life is this question, are you selfish or selfless? I mean, this is one of the first lessons he draws from the life of Christ. Look at this, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Christ is our example. He emptied himself, he divested himself of the paraphernalia of majesty and came to live among us as a slave. He took the form of a servant and became obedient all the way to the cross to save us, love us, and redeem us. You know, when I was in the fourth grade, I took up cello as an instrument. And uh, my mother paid for private lessons for many years. I played cello from elementary school all the way through high school. I loved it. It's a beautiful instrument, has a unique sound. I'd like to think I was pretty good at it. In fact, in middle school, I was asked to play uh, with the Ohio State Branch Orchestra in my town, but I was never first chair. First chair in our orchestra was reserved for the very best cello player, and that was Derek. Derek was my best friend in the world. And rightfully so, first chair went to him. He was better than me. He was way better than me. He was such an outstanding cello player. And I love that he was first chair. Maybe that's why we remain such good friends for years and years. But it reminds me of this story where someone once asked an orchestra conductor, what's the most difficult instrument to play? He immediately says, second violin. He went on to say, he said, I I can find plenty of people who want to play first violin, but to play second violin with enthusiasm, that's what I need. That's, That's a problem because I can't find those people. If you have no second violin, you have no harmony. And that's really what Paul is saying to us here. Second violin is not just something I want you to settle for. It's something I want you to aspire to. I wanted you to make it your ambition. I want you to long to play second violin, second fiddle. Make that your goal. Because when you willingly and gladly take second so that others can be first, we have true fulfillment. We have real harmony. We have a beautiful sound that glorifies God and reaches the world. What I'm talking about is humility, the death of pride. You want to know something? Jesus had rights. He laid them aside for the sake of others and asked us to do the same, that we would so value one another that we would willingly disadvantage ourselves for another's welfare. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you allowed yourself to be disadvantaged so that someone else could win? It reminds me of a story. In the early 1700s, there was a band of missionaries coming out of Europe called the Moravians. And there were two men, uh, Johann Dober and David Nieschmann. And they'd heard about the island of St. John's in the West Indies. They'd heard that black men and women were being treated like animals. They were enslaved, they were regularly beaten, and they were being worked to death in the sugarcane fields. So Dober and Niesman felt called by God to go and minister to these men and women. So they boarded a ship. They went to St. John's in the West Indies. When they arrived there, they went to these Dutch slaveholders and said, we would like to minister to the men and the women in the fields. And they said, it's no use. These people aren't human. They have no souls. So instead, they throw them off the property and forbid them to ever return. Well, Dober and Niesman they go down to the shore They're praying. They're obviously very discouraged. They're seeking God, saying, God, I know you led us here. I know you want us here. We don't understand this. What would you have us do? And God spoke to them. And the next morning, they went back to the slaveholders and said, We want to sell ourselves into slavery. And that's what they did. Within a few months, other missionaries from the Moravian Society arrived in St. John's. And when they arrived, they found two freshly dug graves Dover. And Niesemann had died from the extreme heat and the deplorable working conditions. A lot of people looked at that and said, what a waste. I mean, what sense does that make? But let me tell you something else that the first missionaries found. 30,000 men and women who'd come to know Christ because Dober and Niesemann had joined the ranks of the suffering and laid down their lives to tell men and women how much they mattered to God and that there was a God who loved loved them like no other. Friends, there is no other way to change the world other than the way Jesus did it. He entered a world of human suffering to change it from the inside out. We're called by God to enter the brokenness of our world, everything around our world. None of us gets to live an antiseptic life. None of us gets to be spared hands that don't get dirty. To get down in the muck and the mire where people actually live is what God has called us to do. Because Jesus, he goes to the bottom of the barrel and he takes the people that he finds there and he lifts them up to be with him. We follow where Jesus goes. Following him means to disadvantage ourselves from time to time so that other people might truly thrive. A second question that leads to the fulfilling life is this, are you coasting or cooperating? See, another thing that Paul writes about is in Philippians 2.12, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, notice Paul didn't say work for your salvation, and he doesn't say work at your salvation or work up your salvation. Every true Christian has experienced salvation by believing and receiving what Christ gives freely. None of us work for it, we don't earn it in any way. So, then what does it mean to work out our salvation? What's well, interesting in the first century, this term work out was a term used to describe mining silver. So think about the process of mining silver. When you go into mine silver, the silver is already in the mine, isn't it? You just have to go in there and you have to work it out. You have to expose it. You have to bring it out. Well, what we would say is like the mine, salvation is already ours. It's like the silver in the mine. It's already there. We're not working for our salvation. We're working it out. We're fully cooperating with what God is already doing in our life. You see, there are some people who think that the Christian life is just sitting back and letting God change us passively. In fact, there are people who say, they use this motto, let go and let God. They think that any effort on our part is an attempt to earn salvation. I love the clarification that Dallas Willard made. He said, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Friends, you need to understand that spiritual growth is effortful you have a part in it. We're not just passive. We're to open the Word of God. We're to seek God in prayer. We we meditate. We spend time in solitude. We engage the spiritual disciplines. I'm making an effort when I do that. I'm working out my salvation. What I'm doing is I'm pushing back life to create space in my life for God to have access to every single part of me. Engaging in the spiritual disciplines is my part in spiritual growth. It's me working out my salvation, living out the implications of what God is already doing in me. Now, John Ortberg made a great analogy for this. He said, salvation is kind of like trying to cross the ocean. If you set out in a rowboat, you're never going to make it. You just don't have it in you to make it across the Atlantic in a rowboat. You're also not going to make it if you just drift. Thinking that God's just going to blow me across the ocean, that's not going to work either because no one drifts their way into spiritual transformation. The best analogy is it's like a sailboat. If a sailboat is going to move at all, it's going to take the wind, and the sailor can't make the wind, he can't create the wind, he can't control the wind, can he? But what a sailor can do is discern where the wind is blowing and set their sail to capture it. That's what the spiritual disciplines are all about. They're about setting our sails to catch the wind. This is what it means to work out our salvation. I came across an interesting term this week. It's a a term that was invented just last year. It's the term athleisure, athleisure. Have you ever heard this term? What it refers to is people who buy workout clothes but never work out. Now, it might surprise you to learn, maybe not, that Americans buy more workout clothes than Americans who work out. Apparently, we like the workout look. We don't particularly like the workout style. You know, the sweating part and the muscle aches that come from stretching those muscles we haven't used. But when I read that term, it made me wonder how many athleisure Christians I've known. We like dressing the part, but we have no real intention to engage in the disciplines that helped me grow in the spiritual life. Now, please understand, the disciplines don't earn us anything. They're simply a means to be with God. I don't pursue the discipline. I pursue God. The disciplines is the means. It's not the end. My effort, my part in spiritual growth is to engage in the discipline, to create that space. God's work is to do the changing. And just so that we don't misunderstand what Paul is saying, he follows up this statement of working out our salvation with this powerful statement about what God's already doing in our life. He says, because God is always at work in you to make you willing and able to obey his purpose. Now, there's two phrases in that verse that are vitally important. you see them? Make you willing and make you able. In other words, number one, God changes our desires. If we're gonna change, our desires have to change. What we want in life, has to change. That's exactly what God does. The first thing God does in our life is he changes our wanter. He makes us want what he wants. And I would say this to you, is if your desires have not significantly changed after giving your life to Jesus Christ, you might want to reconsider if you've truly surrendered to him. Because this is the first work God does. To change our lives, our desires have to change. I love the way Jen Michelle said it, desire is the powerful subtext of our lives it determines our decisions this is why we need to pay attention to it if we are to change desire must change but not only does god change our desire he changes our fundamentally uh, our abilities to obey his purpose look at this next point god changes our ability So not only do I now want to please God, do the things he wants me to do, I now find this newfound strength and ability to actually do the things that God is requiring of me. He doesn't just change my want to, he changes my ability to. I have new strength and ability to do what he wants done. So we do our part because God does his part first. God always makes the first move. When God supplies To us, what we need in terms of desire and ability, it guarantees that victory will be ours one day. You will be made like Jesus. You will cross the finish line. You will win the prize because God will finish what he started. But there's one more aspect to the fulfilling life. Paul talks about it in this chapter. It's summarizing the question Are you whining or shining? Here are the two verses, verse 14 and verse 15. In verse 14, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. In verse 15, he says, you shine like stars in the world. Now, this is what what I mean by whining and shining. These two ideas are placed side by side. You know, in the Bible, there are some characters that are just kind of world-class whiners. Uh, Jacob is one, Naomi, Elijah, even Job, after his friends consult him, he gets all off track and he begins to whine. But without a doubt, the trophy for the longest and most sustained whining goes to the nation of Israel because they grumble all the way from Egypt to Mount Sinai, and they grumble for a full 40 years. What you need to understand is that whining and grumbling and complaining is a serious sin to God. It occurs most often when times get tough. Now, if anyone ever had an excuse for whining it would have been the Apostle Paul. Like I've told you, he's writing this from a prison cell, 24-7, chained to an imperial guard, and he's already had a really tough life. And this would seem like the ideal time to whine, too. He's writing to very dear friends at Philippi. Of all people who would be most sympathetic to what he's going through, it would be these people. But he doesn't do that, does he? This is one of the most triumphant and joyful books in all Scripture. So why does the Bible consider whining to be sinful? Because ultimately, whining is an assault on God's ability to rule. What we really are saying when we whine is, if I were God, I would do things differently. You see, Paul makes really clear in this passage that whining and complaining extinguish our illumination. You and I were meant to shine as stars. Grumbling and complaining are bad advertising for the Christian life. Who wants something like that? Discontent is also one of the first steps in rebellion. I mean, think about it. The original sin, the very first sin. Before Adam and Eve ever succumbed to eating the fruit, what they first do is they become discontent with all the blessings God has already provided. Grumpy Christians are literally just one step away from open rebellion with God. So rather than whining, Paul says, why don't you try shining? Shining. Stars, of course, have been used for all time as a navigation for ships at night. It helps to bring them safely in dark times into the harbor. And Paul is saying we're like those stars, that when we live our life the way God intended us to live, that we are a bright beacon, we're a beacon of hope, if you will, for, for people who are in darkness who can see the way home to the heart of God. So then how do we shine as stars? By practicing everything Paul's been telling us. Get out of yourself. Start serving other people. Wake up to the reality that the pursuit of self-fulfillment is not very fulfilling. Years ago, a guy named Daniel Young-Kelvish did a national study on America's search for self-fulfillment. He interviewed hundreds of people in cities across our country, asking people and examining people who were devoted to self-fulfillment. And what he discovered is the people most devoted to their own self-fulfillment we're also the people having the most trouble in their marriages which shouldn't surprise any of us because how could it be anything other than that the bible reminds us that you can't be selfish and loving at the same time if the focus in the relationship is exclusively on you and not the other person you're already doomed to failure so what jesus modeled for us is the real way to be happy the path to true a true fulfilling life you see if you really want to be happy, you got to be committed to bringing happiness to others. Bernard Rimlin is a psychologist, and he's the director of the Institute of Child Behavior Research. He wrote a brilliant article called The Altruism Paradox. And in that article, he made this simple observation. Those whose activity are devoted to bringing themselves happiness are far less likely to be happy than those whose efforts are devoted to making others happy. You see, what he's saying is doing nothing for other people is ultimately the undoing of ourselves. We do the most good for ourselves when we do the most good for other people. What I'm saying is true fulfillment is like a cat. Now, have you ever owned a cat? If you said yes, you don't own a cat because you can't own a cat. You can feed a cat. You can pet a cat. You can groom a cat. You can claim its litter box, but you can't own a cat because cats refuse to be owned. How about this? Have you ever tried to call a cat? I mean, call a cat, these are the most undog like creatures on the planet, right? I mean, they look at you like, don't you know who I am? I don't respond to that kind of stimulus. If you pursue a cat, it just runs under the bed right beyond your grasp. But if you get busy doing something else, it might just hop up into your lap or curl up around your feet. Self-fulfillment is like a cat. Pursue it is always going to be beyond your reach. But get busy serving others. Get busy helping others, and self-fulfillment comes to you. Self-fulfillment comes as a byproduct of pursuing other things. You find your true joy when you stop pursuing it, and you start pursuing joy for others. Bottom line is this. God wants you to have a truly self-fulfilling life. He does. He wants you to have that. He wants you to experience maximum joy. He told us how to do it right here. Make your goal your very aim, your life ambition, to come in second. Give others that first place, and then all this will be yours. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you that we've had this time to gather around your word, around this powerful chapter that Paul writes about who Jesus is, and what he modeled for us, how he lived, the example he set, and that we're called to have the same kind of mindset as Christ. I know for me, God, there's still a lot of work to do, but are some things in me that need to change. There are times when I don't want to disadvantage myself. There are times when I just want to pursue my own joy, my own happiness, and I'm not as committed to my brothers and sisters as I should be. God, I know that that's a work that you're doing in my heart and my life, and I pray that I'll be the kind of believer that will constantly be working out my salvation, that is to present myself and to put myself in a place where you have complete access to every part of my thinking, all of my emotions, every part of my wounded heart, so that it can be healed fully and I can become more like Jesus. I pray, Lord, for everyone who's listening to me right now, that we would make it our prayer this week God, make it my ambition. Make it my goal, my greatest desire to be second. I don't need to be first. I don't have to be at the front of the line. My needs are not the most important thing on this planet. Instead, God, let me be the kind of person who seeks the best interest in the welfare of other people. Let me believe and trust your promises, Lord, that when I pursue that, you take care of me. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. Thank you, Lord, for the powerful truths of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I sure hope you'll hang around for a short time of discussion that'll follow today's message. Just know we're so glad that you could be with us today and we sure miss seeing your faces. Hopefully we'll be together again really soon
1: everyone. We hope that that message on Philippians chapter two really meant something to you. We want to also remind you guys that if you want to give to the generous mission of Spring Creek, there's three easy ways to give. You can give online on our website, springcreekchurch.org. You can text the word give to 96995, or you can mail into our address. Hey, and with that, I'm going to kick it over to Josh, who's going to start our discussion on Philippians chapter two.
2: Thank you, Patrick. I'm excited to have you guys here as we continue our discussion on joyful Philippians. We get to jump into chapter two this week, which is one of my favorites. One of they're all great though. Every one of the scriptures is great. But Philippians two gives us an example of how Jesus came, how he lived, how he died, and what we're supposed to do, how we can do those same things as well. And the first thing I wanted to talk about was Keith said that Jesus wasn't a Kardashian. Like he he was a common man. He didn't come Like, people might expect him to come. He didn't come with a great burst of fire on a horse with a big sword ready to save the day. He came as a common person for common people. When we think about what we're expecting out of success today, what are some of these false measures for success, and uh, maybe even back then what they were looking for in terms of what a successful Savior might look like? You know, I was
1: reading an article the other day that talked about the cult of busyness and how people worship being busy. Um, And I think that's like a false metric of success because a lot of people hate being able to say, I've got free time. Uh, And you ask them and they love saying, oh, I'm so busy. And so we often adequate being busy to being successful. Um, The truth is, is that when I look at Jesus, he was incredibly approachable. You know, I'm reminded of the story when children were shooed away from Jesus by his disciples and he said, let the little children come to me. Um, so I think that the more that we can think about free time as being something that is actually a gift of God rather than something that's, a, a liability for success, the more we can end up looking like him.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, I'd like to think if they had Instagram back in the day, Jesus wouldn't have like thousands of millions of followers, but he'd have 12, you know, like <laughs> <Ooh>. his, his <laughs> disciples. But I think if we had Instagram nowadays, you know, we kind of look at people and based on their followers and we're like, oh, this person has it all together. And in reality, they I don't think they usually do. You know, Uh, I I'm very envious of people with a lot of followers for no reason at all. I just, you know, want the more likes, want those, um, you know, fake Internet points. Um, That doesn't mean anything, but I still want it. And that's what success looks like. But in Jesus' eyes, success was never about how many followers, you know, were following him in town to town. It's just how many disciples he was making and those disciples making disciples.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of it boils down simply to influence is Mm -hmm. we we think successful people have the most influence or the people who have the most influence are the most successful. Mm -hmm. So naturally, Jesus should have come and associated with the most influential people. Yeah. It would have been way easier to save the whole world, I think, if he was just like, let's change the laws and treat each other better. But to satisfy God's wrath and open the door for us to enter into grace, he did what he did for common people, the least of these, which is who he is, who he was, who he continues to be. And that's our calling, is we shouldn't measure our success by our influence, by our wealth, by how many followers we have or how many meetings with the governor we get to have or whatever, we should measure our success with, how are are we loving the least of these? Jesus was obedient to God's will. He followed God, God's plan the whole time. He loved the least of these. And then in Philippians, Paul writes that he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Keith talked about how the, the word cross or crucifix, is it's a bad word back then. It's a socially unacceptable word. But... For us to look at Jesus, it's a sign of perseverance. We see that He persevered through everything for us. What are some of the things that we think are weighty or heavy that we have to persevere through, and how does that measure up with what Jesus went through? I think that there are th- even
1: though the cross is the most weightiest of all, I, I don't want to diminish other things that actually are weighty, and especially in a time like this with COVID-19 shutting down so much of the economy, I know that people feel the weight of not being able to provide the way that they want to provide, whether they've been let go, whether they've been furloughed or whether work's not coming in. Um, and there's things like that, that that give people an opportunity to per- persevere. Um, I, again, don't don't want to say that it's the same because it's not, but even the social distancing even for someone like me who constantly wants to be around people, gives me an opportunity to persevere. And when things like not being able to be around people that I I love and I truly care about, um, when that gives me an opportunity to persevere and I I don't feel like doing it, it's often the good time to remind myself of how big my perseverance is versus Jesus when he took that cross to Calvary. Yeah.
3: Yeah, It's kind of add on with the social distancing. Um, that's one of the biggest things that I've also struggled with too is like, I miss seeing everyone on the weekends, you know, and you know, taking, I've taken hugs for granted, you know, I wasn't much of a hugger, but now I would just kill for one from our, you know, awesome welcome team and and a half five and a handshake and, you know, just anything like that. But I like how we still have the online services because we're still, we still have that community.
2: Yeah. So. I think it's, It's not surprising that we got three extroverts together and social distancing came up as like, I have to persevere by not being around people. And that's really hard for us right now. Um, But at the same time, Jesus set that model is, it's going to be hard. We persevere for what's on the other side. We press on to continue to run the race, to win the race. We press on. So we we have these, these moments where we need to reconsider how am I being obedient to God's will? because that's what Jesus did. Am I saying no to something that provides temporary satisfaction now for the sake of honoring God, for being obedient like Jesus did? And then he modeled the way that we are to interact with each other, to serve. Uh, Keith said that we're, we're all into this together. He modeled this service of being the second violin. Without the second violin, there is no harmony, and the second violin never gets any praise. What does this look like for us to live a fulfilling life, to serve people? And and how, how do we get satisfaction out of that? How is that really fulfilling?
1: Uh, I think what Keith said in the message was really good when he talked about how disciplines are not the answer in themselves, but seeking God produces those disciplines. And so, um, if you're in an attempt to serve others, Paul marks out those nine fruits of the Spirit. Um, that's what it looks like to serve others, is to love others, to have joy with others and to go down the list as ways of showing that fruit towards other people.
3: Yeah. I love how we quoted high school musical. We're all in this together and it just for them, just us like, I mean, as a church right now, we have a, a stitches of love and they've just, they came in clutch and just providing so many masks for so many different um, organizations and people, uh, retirement homes, um, hospitals and everything like that. And so, Really putting themselves second, and I talked to some of them as well, and just how much they're willing and you know set an example of what it is to serve and love, and through that they're bringing joy. And so within those spiritual disciplines, they're kind of hitting it on the head, and it's a really great example for us. Uh, I would love learn love to learn how to sew. Um, but I don't trust myself with needles and like thread like that. I, I think I'll just like smart. make myself like a webbed hand or something. Just be safe out there, Alan. Yeah. yeah. Josh can teach you how to sew. <laughs> I, oh. I would love to. I take up crocheting.
2: That seems fun. But it's a great example that none of the people on our Stitches of Love team are making masks so that they might be on the news. So yeah. that people might celebrate them publicly. They're making masks because there's a need. Yeah. Um, they have every right to just make one mask and wear it themselves, but they continue to make them and produce them, and I get a new request every couple of days that I'm passing along to them. Life is fulfilling when it's not about us. Uh, I learned a song last summer about how joy comes from Philippians 2, and it goes J-O-Y, J-O-Y. This is what it means. Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. And when we're living a fulfilling life, it's when we remember that order of events. Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. This this last point that Keith had is about working out our salvation. It's living a life of others first, but also he talks about how when you're mining silver, the silver's already in there. You're just going to get it out. So what we have to do is live a life that's mining silver, and the two things Paul challenges us in are... Are you whining or are you shining? He says, do nothing without complaining or grumbling, but instead shine like stars in the universe, uh, holding fast to the word of truth. What are some things you have in your life that are convicting you or reminding you to, to shine instead of whine, or how do we overcome that dynamic?
3: Uh, I am the biggest baby when it comes to being sick and just any sort of minor inconvenience. And so I, I do whine a lot. You can ask my coworkers. Um, right here around me Uh, and especially like right now um I I have been you know kind of in the dumps and you know kind of disgruntling about being indoors all day and you know still getting work done but like on my own time and I'm just you know not really liking it so something that I can do a lot better is to not do that honestly just because I'm so blessed to be able to be doing this. You know, I'm so blessed to have the resources to be doing what I'm doing for the students, the, and the, the calling to do it as well. And there's, um, there's a lot of people that aren't in the same situation, unfortunately. And just thinking, you know, the, there's that, there's that old saying I hear from people. It's like, you know, a lot of people can have it worse. And then other people say like, Oh, but a lot of people have it better. So can I not be in the middle? But it's kind of true. Like a lot of people do have it worse, so I need to be just more grateful, more um, thankful for you know God giving me this opportunity here at Spring Creek in general, and um, just to do what's best for the church and do it with the students and my team and everyone around me. Yeah. What do you think?
1: You know, I'm a new-ish parent. Uh, my son's two, so I'm still figuring everything out every single day. But one of the things I've realized is being around a two-year-old, they know nobody else's needs other than themselves. And uh, there's no explaining to my son that I also have needs or I also have desires. And so my life is constantly meeting his needs and his desires in the best way that I can. Um, There's nothing that I can do to complain to him. Uh, He's not gonna listen. He's not gonna understand. Uh, But what I've learned is God's given me the most amazing opportunity to not complain about what I'm doing, but to shine. Shine in a family unit where nobody other than my son and my wife are going to see. And so I know that there's parents out there that are listening to this that are in the midst of a whine or shine moment. And I'm telling you, there's never going to be a moment where other people see you shine the way that you do. But the children that you're raising are going to be that example of what shining looks like and how God
2: works through you as a parent to meet those needs. Yeah, it's a great reminder. I think really, we rarely get to see ourselves shining, but we're often aware of when we're whining. And so when we get in those moments where we're whiny and want to whine, if we consider just not whining, like, just don't do anything right now, it trends us towards shining, and we get to perk up a little bit. Shining is really this attitude of gratitude. We are grateful for whatever it is. I'm not going to whine. I'm not going to complain, because when we whine and complain, we are ungrateful, and we wish we had it different, wish we had it better. But Jesus shows us that our lives are not about us. They aren't, you know, we aren't living to build our own kingdoms. We're living to establish his kingdom come here on earth. So let's shine instead of wine by living a fulfilling life filled with joy by serving others, because that really does fill us with joy when we serve others for Christ. Thank yep. you guys for joining me for this discussion. I look forward to next week, Philippians 3. There we go.
3: That comes after 2.